0: If you have your Bible this morning uh, and if you've been visiting with us, we did take a a week break last week because of uh, our sickness at home. And thank you for your prayers. Once again, we are doing much better. We're all past the CDC guidelines to be amongst people, but we're just kind of easing our feet. You know, it's kind of like when you get out of the pool. Uh, and you cool off or dry off for a minute, and then even though it's hot, you kind of dip your feet back in the water because you know you're going to get that. You know what I'm talking about—that cold feeling. It's kind of what we are doing with life right now. So thank you for your patience. But we're glad to be here. We're glad to be back, and we continue our series this morning about greater than. If you're visiting with us, we've been studying through the Book of Hebrews since basically the beginning of the year, on or off a few weeks here or there. But we are into Chapter 10. We've modified the schedule a little bit, but we hope to be through Chapter 11 by the holidays and finish up the rest of the book by uh, uh, early next year, January, February, depending on the time frame of things. Hey, it's still on task, so we're going to get it done, right? We're, we're getting there, and we will be there, but God is good. This morning, God has is, is shown us in his word that Christ is greater than apostasy. That's a word we don't use a lot these days, but I'll remind you what it is. Apostasy is literally a walking away from the faith. It's saying, I was once among the people of God, but now I'm away from the people of God. And two weeks ago and three weeks ago, we studied the positive effects of someone who's truly walking with Christ, that they will have a certain manner about them. And two weeks ago, we we, we said that they want to be among God's people. They desire to be among the people of God, not just to have a, their butt on a seat, not just to be counted for attendance purposes, but engage spiritually and physically in the life of a church because they know that is where God is working. It may not always be at the same church for a lifetime. And next week, if you're here for the 60th, you'll meet some people who've literally been here most of their life at Tower View Baptist Church, which is a pretty cool thing. It's not just about a membership role, though. And those people would say the same. What we found out is, is that if you're truly a Christian, you not only desire to be with God's people, but you desire not to forsake the assembling of God's people unless providentially hindered. You get sick, life happens but you don't just coast into heaven saying, I got Jesus, I got my Jesus shot, I'm good to go. You want to be around God's people because guess what? You're going to be around God's people for all eternity. Why would you not start here? Just because your name's on a Baptist roll, you've attended a church, you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, raised your hand in the evangelist tent meeting, does not mean you're any more of a Christian than I am in a car if I sleep in the garage for an entire week. That was not a sports reference Dave, but it was pretty close. If you are able to stand this morning, would you join me in standing for God's word in Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 26 through 31 this morning. And I'll be reading out the ESV. And we will be going into God's word as we look at apostasy this morning. Specifically, three sides of apostasy. What it means to walk away from the faith, to throw your arms up and say, God, I want nothing more to do with you. Remember verses 19 through 25 were the positive effects of a Christian. He's writing, yes, generally to Christians, but now he's calling out the Jewish brothers and sisters who have yet to make a decision for Christ. And now he's telling them, if you do not make a decision, this is what you will look like. We pick that up in verse 26. He says, writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, for if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone, verse 28, who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he sang, was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing, verse 31, to fall into the hands of a living God. Aren't you grateful your God is living this morning? He is such a good God. Will you pray with me? We're going to get right into this. May God give us grace and wisdom, and may God, if this, you need to hear this, this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're on the fence, this message, as always, is for you. It's for me. It's for us, not because I prepared it, but because it's God's word before us. Let's go before our Lord. Father. As we come to you. We thank you for these words. We are reminded of Scripture shocking us into life, arresting our attention as it should. For, Father, we are so easily like those greyhounds and other things that race around racetracks. If you just put a bone in front of us, we'll go chase it. Father, how often we need to be pulled back into the reality of what is real, what is not, what is for eternity, and what is just of this world. May this morning, by your grace and Spirit, we see these things clearly. Whether we are saved or unsaved, remind us of how great a God you are. We love you, Lord. We pray all this today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, I am dating myself here, and I'm showing how much we do not watch shows. A few years ago, there was a show around called 24. Many of you may remember this. It's been a few years ago, but 24 was a show, and, and Nelson will put up the little clip or little thing, or whoever has got it will put it up there. But it was about a guy who was an agent in the, uh, in the U.S. government named Jack Bauer, and he was an anti-terrorist agent. And he was his job was basically to weed out the people who were in the government who are not supposed to be in the government, the moles, the spies, the the, the bad guys. And one of the reasons it so gripped us is, is because this this movie about – or the show about 10, 12 years ago was so popular, was because we could see it. We could see how easily someone could sneak into a place like the government and get away with acting like the normal people when, in fact, they were not of the people. And people ate it up. Did anyone ever watch the show? I mean, it's been a few years, not like uh, hee-haw a few years, like 50 years ago. If you're laughing, you, you show your age. I'm, no, I'm just kidding you. But you know, if you watch this show, you know how much it was a popular show. But Christianity is, is also dealing, if you will, with a, a terrorism, I use that in quotes loosely, that is more serious than I've mentioned. And it's a spiritual terrorism. It's a terrorism that comes when people infiltrate the church by false doctrine, false belief, and false living for Jesus. Even when on the outside they look good, but on the inside they're, like Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. And this is referred to as apostasy. This word literally occurs in several different places, and and, and Brennan will put this up for us. But in 1 Timothy 4.1, it tells us that the Spirit clearly says that in latter times there will be some who abandon, who apostatize the faith or depart from the faith. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, this is not on the screen, it says the coming of the Lord will not happen except, quote, except there be a falling away, an apostatizing away, a, a departing from the faith. Look, if you've known someone who has walked away or who has professed Jesus and walked the other way, this is not unexpected. It's actually right in line with what the Bible says. And so it is. An apostasy is literally a departure from the Bible, and an apostate is a person who believes whatever it is has taken them away from it. And so what are we dealing with? We're dealing with a world that is changing. We're dealing with churches that are infiltrated, maybe not in mass, but in certain sectors of people who say they believe in Jesus, but really have, know nothing about Jesus, but everyone else thinks they do, so they're treated as such. And that was the same problem in the book of Hebrews. We're dealing with a world that is in a culture that is not filled necessarily with anarchy, but the problem is not so much anarchy in the culture, it's, it's anarchy inside the church. One of those problems is that people think they are okay when they're not okay. So what are some signs of someone who are walking away from the faith? And can they ever come back? I mean, do you ever think about that before? If someone walks out the door and says they know Jesus but doesn't turn to Jesus until the very last? Can they still be saved? And I know you know the answer to this because you're, you're, you've been taught well your lifetime, but can we lose our salvation? If you're a Christian here today, the big idea, and Brendan will put this up for us, is that the big idea is that a professing Christian's greatest danger is not dying, it's apostasy. It's believing that you're okay when you're really not okay with Jesus. It's believing that you're saved when you're really not saved. I put this on Facebook, and I got a lot of private messages about this, and I'll read it as I posted it. But look, no one graduates from Christianity. Watching Christians you've served with, you've shared the gospel with, you've dreamed big dreams with, you've, you've done all sorts of things in church with, walk away, reject the faith, deconstruct the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is heartbreaking, it's exhausting, and it's grievous. If you've ever known someone, maybe your own child, maybe your own flesh and blood, who's walked away from Jesus, you know the heartache, don't you? And you know the feeling. But remember, this has been said it would happen. And no true believer will fall away. If he falls away, he never knew Christ. The proof that you're a believer is that in this life, you persevere in your faith all by God's grace. He who endures to the end, Jesus said, will be saved. So this morning, though, I want you to see the opposite effect. What does it look like when someone says, I'm a Christian, but I'm walking away from the faith. I don't want anything to do with the faith, even though externally I look good. You know, even a pig can have lipstick on it, can't it? But inside, it's just all fat and gross stuff. What does that person look like? Well, the book of Hebrews is going to tell us, you just read it, three things this morning, three sides of apostasy. Your outline, if you're taking notes, this is very straight from the scripture. I'm not telling you anything. It's not right in front of you, but I want you to see it again. What does this look like? The first side of apostasy, the first side is this, is, is the components of apostasy, the components of apostasy. Brent, if you just want to put up the, there's two clicks after that, if you would just put those up for those taking notes. Thank you. Look, I want you to know that this is very much something that is easy to miss. But what is the breakdown? If you have your Bible, as you're taking notes, verse 26 tells you, it says, If we go on sinning deliberately. Are willfully, the first component of apostasy is that you intentionally reject the truth. You intentionally reject the truth in your Greek Bible, or excuse me, in your, in your Greek, you read Greek, right? In your English Bible, you probably have this phrase, if you go on sinning. Do you see that there in verse 26? For if we go on sinning deliberately, your Bible may not have that. At the very first. Your Bible may have that placed in the second part of the sentence. But I'm here to tell you that in the Greek, that word willfully, for if we go on willfully, is the first word in the sentence. And I only say that to say it's important for you to know. Literally, it says, willfully if you go on sinning, stubbornly if you go on sinning. In other words, if you are sinning and continue to sin and you don't care what people think about it, and more importantly, you don't care what God thinks about it, you might have walked away from the faith. That word intentionally or willfully is planned out. It's a fore premeditated thought. It is something that you have. It's a full disclosure has been given to you of the truth, but you still decide with all plans in your life to say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And you notice the word we, you may have that willfully, if we go on sinning. Well, what is he saying here? He's saying that he, it's kind of like when you were, if your teacher was nice and you knew there was a guy who always got everyone in trouble and everyone had to suffer because that one guy got everyone else in trouble, the teacher would get up and say, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Even though you know it's Johnny over there, you can't point the finger at Johnny because you know Johnny's the one that did it. The teacher's nice and says, what are we doing here? And you all have to say out after school and write your name 100 times on the chalkboard or marker board, whatever they have these days. He's including the we here because he's saying that we all have been a part of this. We've all rejected the truth, but now the difference is we are not going on sinning, but you are. We're not perfect, but you're deciding to sin anyway. It's an intentional rejection of the truth. And I want you to know, uh, verse 39, how do we know there's a difference? Look at verse 39 of the chapter there. He says, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. He's making a distinction. He's saying, look, there are people in our midst, writer of the Hebrews, Hebrew people, that are saved. But there are others who continue to sin, and because they continue to sin, they show they never knew the one who came to save sinners, and his name is Jesus Christ. So the we inside the we of verse 26 are those in apostasy. It's not that they're not just responding to the gospel. You know, because if you're honest with yourself, how many times did it take you that you heard Jesus died for your sins before you actually came to faith in Jesus Christ? Now, it may be that some of you literally came to know Jesus the very first time you heard that name. Praise the Lord. But for the rest of us, it was kind of like you're getting pounded on the head by the Holy Spirit time and time and time again, right? And finally, after the thousandth time, God finally opened your heart to believe. It's not just that they heard the gospel one time and rejected it. They've heard the gospel over and over and over and over, and they have said, I don't like it. I hate it. Get it out of here. I'm rejecting the truth. And that sin is a sin of unbelief. It's almost like if you gave them 500 times to hit a baseball in a batting cage, they would sit out there and let 498 go by. And about when 499 comes up, there's reference number three, Dave. uh, You try and hit the ball, you get serious about 498 out of 500. These people have been around the truth. They've heard the truth. They've heard it preached. They've seen it lived. And they still want nothing to do with it. They've rejected it. So what do you do with this? This is literally called, as Jesus said, the the ultimate sin. Do you know what that is? This is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? All sins will be forgiven you, Jesus said, except that of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, first, what is blasphemy? It's not a word you use all the time. It's taking God's name in vain. It's, it's, It's taking what is holy and making it unholy or common. And the Holy Spirit must take you by the hand and lead you to Christ. But these people have said... Get away, Holy Spirit, like a fly. Get, get off me. I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. They've rejected the truth. But I want you to notice, once again, the second component. They had a full knowledge of the truth. Did you see that at the end of verse 26? They had a full knowledge of the truth. That word knowledge here is, is not the usual Greek word gnosis, which is ordinary knowledge. It's, it's in the emphatic here. It's epigenosis, which means a full, complete knowledge of the subject. Do you know when something happens around the world that, that uh, media outlets have all their, they have a list of people who are their experts, so they can get those great quotes that, that, that make people uh, read the headlines and read everything? Well, if you had an expert on how to sin, these people would be it. It's not just that they sin. They have a full knowledge of who God is, what the gospel is. That's what that word truth means at the end of verse 26. And it literally says they understand it. They could be experts in teaching it, but they still want nothing to do with anything about it. Isn't that sad? That you can be so religious that you're lost? That you can be so full of truth that you're really the most untruthful person there is in this world? It is. If you'll hold your spot there, go back to Hebrews 6 for a moment. It's been a few months, but go back to Hebrews 6. This is the same language that was used in Hebrews 6. As you go down to verse 5, excuse me, verse 4, Hebrews 6, 4, and we won't read the whole passage, but you recall that these same people were addressed even a few chapters ago. He says in verse 4, is it impossible to restore again the repentance of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God. What he's saying is here in chapter 6 is they were made partakers. They sat down at the meal of God's truth and they ate of it. They rolled it around in their mouth and they said, I want nothing to do with it. When you put it in that context, it really changes it a bit, doesn't it? When someone walks away from Jesus, it's not just that they've turned over a leaf in the other way. They literally have rejected the very truth of God that they partook of, they, they supped with, they went to the golden corral of, of buffets of God's Word and got it all and put a little bit on their plate and said, no, I want nothing to do with this. Take it away. But I want you to know Before you point the finger at the culture, and you can go back to chapter 10, this is not a cultural sin, guys. This is a church sin. So many times as Christians, and I think there's a point where we can do this, we look at the culture around us and say, man, if this culture would just change, the church would change. If this culture would just get its rearing gear, then we would be okay. If this culture would follow God's word. Yes, that's true to an extent, isn't it? And we should pray for our culture. But this is not a sin in a back room. This is not a cultural sin. These are people who sat in churches much like ours every week with the open Bible, the word of God, whatever it was, hearing it, and they were served it nonstop, and they still apostatized. They've said, as verse 26 says, they fell away from the knowledge of the truth. Do you see who those people are? Friends, this is why when we talk about uh, one of my pastor friend of mine posted on Facebook the other day, he said, what do you think the number one reason for the decline in the American church is? And all sorts of answers. But a common theme among pastors was noted that we don't take seriously those that we let in the front door of our churches that we don't examine them to a point where we confirm to the best of our ability by the word of God, the Holy Spirit, the testimony of them and others that they really are a Christian and that we let anyone in the church who's willing to walk an aisle, sign a card, go to a membership class just because we like the numbers when the annual Baptist report comes out. Shame on us. I don't know if the church in America is really declining if more, than God is just cleaning house of those that are directly involved in what verse 26 has actually just said. Those are the components of apostasy. Let's go to number two. What is the condemnation of apostasy? What happens to them now that they have uh, uh, had these things, that they're falling away, they're rejecting the truth, they've heard the truth? Well, he gives us the threefold condemnation. You see the first of that at the end of verse 26. And if you'll just put up the first one, Brennan, that would be appreciated. The first one here is no sacrifice for sins. You notice that they receive no sacrifice for sins. He says there no longer remains for them a sacrifice. In other words, they had the knowledge, they rejected it. And this is referring to the person of Christ. Uh, They knock it away. The offer has tumbled to the ground. There's no sacrifice for them anymore. Hebrews 6 repeated that same thing. This is just following up what he's already said. This person, if you want to put it in very simple language, is beyond the point of no return. This person is at such a stage in their spiritual walk that God has said, You want your sin, you want to reject me, take it and go. And guess what? They're not coming back. Well, doesn't Christ still save them till the end? Yes, He does. Christ can. But to turn away like this literally means there is no sacrifice in sin. This is, to put this in a very theological term. Ephesians 2, 1 says we are dead in our sins and trespasses. This is not what this is talking about. In a sense, it is. It's another thing, as Jude said, to be doubly dead to the truth. These people aren't just dead to the truth. They are past the point of accepting the truth where God has given them up to their passions to the point they can never be saved. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But notice the second condemnation. There is no escape from hell for them. Verse 27. He says, what is the expectation for them? Verse 27 is very clear on this, but a fearful expectation and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice that a rejection of the truth, a sacrifice for sins leads to a fire. And Brennan, if you want to put that next one up, would be appreciated. Thank you. You notice there's a legal requirement here. There's a judgment. There's also a judgment of emotion. There's a fury of fire. God is bringing forth all of his control, the motion in this. But there's also a physicalness to it. They will be consumed in the fire of God's judgment. So many people today say hell is just a symbolic thing. I think you know if you're a Bible-believing Christian that that is not the truth. Scripture, Jesus himself says, Matthew five, that it'll be a fiery hell. Matthew thirteen, forty two, there'll be the furnace of fire. Jesus said in Mark nine, forty-three, it's unquenchable, it's uh, assaulted with fire will be those who reject Christ. Revelation nine two says that hell will be a furnace of the smoke of the pit. Revelation fourteen ten, there will be fire and brimstone. Revelation nineteen twenty, there will be a lake of fire that burns with brimstone. You know, there's a story, and I didn't realize this until the prep of the sermon, that a fire started some uh, thousands of, uh, hundreds of years ago, excuse me, in 1560 in China. Uh, somehow they lit a, a, a natural coal plane. I didn't know they had such things. But in 50, 1560, the Chinese lit a fire in a coal plane, and it just burned for over 430 years until, like, 1997, that fire was finally put out. They estimated that they burned over 130 million uh, uh, tons of coal in that time. Isn't that crazy? uh, This happened. But that fire went out, and yet it burned for 430 years. These people who are rejecting the truth have no sacrifice or sin or escape from hell. There's never going to be any end to the fire. It's fire on top of fire. There's no escape, and it never goes out. What is the result is that they literally are condemned. The final condemnation for them, and you see this in verse 28, is that they have no mercy in judgment. Look at verse 28. He says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser the greater is is that they now have the truth of Jesus. They have the opportunity to be forgiven of their sins, and they still say no. And he says, look, there is a point in our history where even in the Old Testament, if you did something bad, that, 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 that there was a, a death. There was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You remember that? What if every sibling had that rule? We wouldn't have any teeth or eyes left, would we? But back in the Old Testament, there was a death penalty. Your physical death, that was it. But now the writer of Hebrews says there's no mercy in judgment that when they die, they die not only physically, but they die, what Romans 6 says, that they die spiritually as well. It is not only a death penalty, it is a death penalty forever. Matthew 10, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is able to destroy body and soul, and punishment is far more severe in the case of the apostate. So what happens to them? Well, John nineteen eleven, Jesus said of Judas, He who has delivered me up to you, Judas has the greater sin. The point is, is there is much worse punishment than you think you will deserve if you trample underfoot the Son of God, after you knew the truth. The Bible seems to say that there are those who don't know the full knowledge of Jesus, those people who've never heard the gospel before, who reject Jesus, who reject even the, the general revelation of nature and the law in their hearts, Romans 1 and 2, etc. They will not be judged as severely in hell as those who sat under the preaching of the word, who are around Christian people, who knew all the right things, who could teach the class but never accepted it themselves. It's humbling, isn't it? Because how many people do we know in America who've heard the gospel, who could teach the gospel, who know what Jesus did for them, even if they know the right words without knowing all the meaning? The Bible seems to indicate that there will be no mercy in a severer sense in hell than those who just simply don't have all the pieces put together. So what happens to them and what happens? Well, there's three witnesses against them now. And Brennan, if you want to put these up, There are three witnesses to this condemnation. The first is, and you see this in verse 29, who are they rejecting? Who's who's standing against them? How do we know this is what's going to befall them? Well, verse 29 tells you. Verse 29 says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who spurn the Son of God? and have profane the blood of his covenant, who have spurned the Son of God. You may have in your, your Bible who have trampled underfoot. This is literally, this is not Jesus being, uh, as as one commentator put it, this isn't Jesus being stomped on. I'm um, using another sports reference, Dave, that's four if you're keeping count. It's not like Jesus is, is on the ropes in some wrestling match and they're doing those fake kicks they do as professional wrestlers. He's not being stomped on in that way. These are people who are, who are literally kicking the greatest truth to the gutter. They see the truth and they kick it in the gutter. These are the nicest, kindest people. They're the best. They're giving it their all. They're the best neighbors. But they are rejecting Jesus to the point where they're trampling underfoot the person of Jesus Christ. When he says they're rejecting or trampling underfoot the Son of God, they're literally rejecting that Jesus is who he said he was. Pastor Nelson, when he read the scripture, said, people always say, who is Jesus to you? Oh, he's my friend. He's my prayer partner. He's my greatest supporter. He is all those things. But who is he what the Bible says? These people are saying nothing. And I'm going to say it again. The greatest sin today is not happening in Argosy Casino or Kansas Speedway, or the new online betting that you can do if you're two inches inside uh, Kansas and your GPS lines up to, to bet sports online. It's not happening with the prostitutes that walk along Truce Avenue or, or Independence Avenue when, when the lights go down and, and the moon, or lights go up and the moon comes up and the darkness comes around. It's not happening at the crack houses around Kansas City. It's not happening in Clay County Jail or Liberty Jail or, or North Kansas City jail. Where the gospel is made known and a person refuses and tramples under the son of foot underfoot the Son of God. That's where the sin is greatest. But they also reject the work of Christ. Did you notice that there? Look at verse 29. They reject the work of Christ. They have profaned the blood of the covenant. What is he saying here? They have made. Holiness common. They have said whose blood, Jesus' blood. Look, if you reject God, you consider his blood of have no saving value or concern whatsoever. And you notice that phrase, your Bible may have this weird look back at back your Bible if you have it. you have that phrase in there by who by, uh, by which was sanctified? Do you have that there? You probably have the word sanctified. The ESV reads it as um, uh, he was sanctified. Well, who was sanctified? Who was set apart? Was it the sinner? Or was it the Savior? Well, I'm just going to take a time out for a second. I want to remind you that we have translations of our Bibles. I want to remind you, you may see that word he in lowercase, but I think it's best here to make it capital. It's not violating Scripture. The Bible's not upper or lowercase. But but but, but who's being sanctified? Who is who is this? If it refers to the sinner, then you can lose your salvation. Once you're sanctified, then you could go to hell, is basically if you took that translation, that that interpretation. The better interpretation is that one being sanctified here in verse 29 is the Savior. He was sanctified. He was humbled, and, and he went all the way to the cross. John 17, 19, Jesus said, For their sakes I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified. What's all the point of it? The person who rejects Jesus rejects who he is, but also what he came to do. He doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He doesn't care about his work. He cares about himself. And finally, you notice that last witness is a witness of the Spirit. They not only reject the person and work of Christ, they reject the witness, a contempt, if you will, for the Spirit of grace, and has insulted. Your Bible may say something different there in verse 29. They insulted the Spirit of grace, or has outraged the Spirit of grace. What he's saying is is not only have they said no to the atonement, not only have they said no to Jesus, but they've also said no, I don't care if you come back and tell me more about Jesus. That's why when someone rejects Jesus and walks out the door, do you know what most Baptist churches will do? Hey brother, we haven't seen you for 5 years. If we offer you a pool and a bowling alley and whatever you want church to be, would you come back? Please, please, please. What you win them to church is what you keep them to. If you win them with a big, if you win them with an offer of an Xbox coming to Easter church service, and they win that Xbox, well, you better have something bigger and better next year. That 50-inch TV better be 64 inches. I don't know how big they make them these days. 75. Thank you, Fred. I know what we got to get Fred for Christmas now. He's already got his wish list out. Amen. I got it. He's got a 65. But do you see the point? It's not just that they've rejected Jesus and his work. They've now insulted the Spirit of grace. When you reject the Holy Spirit, you reject the gospel. You reject God. It doesn't matter what you try and bring them back with, they are gone. There's no returning. These three witnesses bear witness that they are now condemned forever. He will no longer convict their hearts, He will no longer show them their sin. He will no longer, as God told some of His prophets, don't pray for these people. God, I'm I'm like their rep, I'm like their pastor. You don't want me to pray for? Yes, stop praying for those people because they've already chosen what they chose. The greatest judgment is for God just to let you go. Go have fun. If you're here today, and maybe you have walked away from what you once believed or professed to believe. But God is still pricking your heart. You need to take a moment in yourself and celebrate that you still have a conscience heart before God, a soft heart before God. Because if you do, that is a positive praise that God has not done with you. And Christian, lest you think that you can out God's grace, oh man, you never can. What a great God we serve. Do you, do you see how amazing grace is? that God didn't just let you go, that when you sin, Christian, he brings you back time and time and time again. Last thing, and we'll end with this. There's not only the condemnation, the components of apostasy, but I want you to see finally the condemner, condemner, the one who's condemning the apostasy. I think you know where this is headed, but look at verse 30. The writer of Hebrews says, For we know him, who's the him here? It's God, right? We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Stop right there. What is he saying? There's a familiarity with the judge. We know him. He's God. And notice it's the one, it's God Almighty. He quotes here Deuteronomy 32, 35, which if you're into American history, uh, the great preacher Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon uh, sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you have not read it, listen to it, write it down. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's going to win people, and that's going to get them all to come to church, right? Well, you would think not, but apparently, as many of you know, he got up one day in the middle of, 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 of uh, the early days of our country, did Jonathan Edwards in 1741 in Connecticut, and he preached like this. You Ready? He had a wig on. He kind of had a little bit of Jack Kimbrell's beard going on in a fake wig kind of way. And uh, he got up to preach. And he talked like this. He never raised his voice or lowered his voice, but he just read the scripture like this. And he did that for many, many minutes. And out of that sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, based upon Hebrews ten thirty and 31, and also Deuteronomy 32, 35, sparked what we now know as one of the great awakenings, the first great awakening in churches around the world. It wasn't his personality. It definitely wasn't his wig. And it wasn't his stature. God saw fit to open up hearts. If you're here today, I can't be any more clear, I pray, than I have been. But vengeance is mine. God doesn't have a hitman. God does it himself. God is literally going to, Dave, here's number five, God is literally going to cast away all those. Five-step drop. All those who reject Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't send an angel. Notice he doesn't send the church or a pastor or a preacher or a council or the Spanish Inquisition. He sends himself. That's why he says the Lord will judge his people. And friends, I want to remind you this morning, please divorce yourself from any thought that God is absent from hell. God is as real omnipresent in hell, judging people who reject him as he is in heaven with those who are celebrating the victory of the Lamb. All this to say, it is a terrifying thing, verse 31, isn't it? To fall in the hands of the living God. It is beyond the worst horror movie. Freddy, Jason, It, the killer clown of Stephen King's imagination. God looks at those things and says, that's the best you can do. The most horrible thing will be is that they will be in hell forever and ever in unrelenting torment. Let me be clear again. These are not just people who've heard the gospel one time and walked away. These are people who sat in churches, around church people, who heard the truth, who could probably teach the truth, who know the truth in their head, but have walked away willfully and have rejected it. So if you know someone like that in your life, let me close with this before we partake of the Lord's Supper. What do you do? Brandon, if you just want to put all three up, I think they're all on that one slide for sake of time. Thank you. It's not a foolproof plan. I'm not saying if you do these things that someone in this boat that you know, maybe someone very close to you is going to come back. But I want to be very practical with you that most foremost, it starts with prayer. Doesn't it always? The most thing we usually forget. But you need to pray for a heart of brokenness for these people, no matter what the earthly cost. I'm going to pick on him because it's one of his quotes. Brother Willie, my former pastor who's a member with us now, said many years ago, and I've quoted him before, July 4th, 2010. You don't remember saying it brother, but for some reason it's stuck in my head. And there's a lot of good things you said that stuck as well. But he prayed that people wouldn't go out and celebrate 4th of July and forget all about because we were going through Hebrews at that time. He said, "I pray God turns you inside out and upside down until you either accept him or you reject him." It's the exact same thought. We don't want hard times to come to people we don't want people we love to get hurt or maimed or, or have terrible things happen to them. Can I just be honest with you? Sometimes it's through those things that people honestly come to know Jesus or turn to him. I'm not asking you to pray that, I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not, I'm not asking you to pray ill will on people, but I'm asking you to pray that God would break them and they either accept him or rejecting, and that is clear. And we don't play this, this nice, oh, I'm a Christian because I'm a church member kind of thing. May God make it clear to them. But secondly, you're going to pray that the enemy's desire to have them would go away. You know what Satan's number one desire for them is? Well, if I'm going to hell, God, Satan says, I'm going to take as many people with me as I can. You pray, 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 25, that, that they would their eyes would be unveiled and they would be unsnared from his snatches. You don't believe Satan's real? Oh, man. You got another one coming to you right there. But secondly, you haven't seen spiritual warfare until you see someone who knows the truth, rejects the truth, thinks they know it, but needs to be unclouded by it. Do you know the greatest truth that we've told people? Can I be honest with you? One of the greatest lies we've told people in churches around the world for the last 150 years is that if you pray a quote-unquote sinner's prayer, you're going to heaven simply because you prayed that prayer. Most people we talk to as pastors at one time did that prayer. I'm saved, pastor. I prayed that prayer. That prayer will no more save you than anything else in this world can. Either you trusted the Jesus of the Bible or you didn't. And you know what Satan will do to those people? They will come up to you and say, how dare you question my salvation? But friend, you have no evidence in your life that you know Jesus. You're headed to hell. But my pastor told me I'm saved and that's good enough for me. Well, your pastor ain't God, and if he doesn't know his Bible, then he shouldn't be in the pulpit. Friends, this is not child's play. This is serious business. The Chiefs game at 325 today. Yeah, I'll probably watch it with you, and I'll probably celebrate a win or a loss, but who cares if someone's headed to hell because they think they know the truth and they don't. But you know what the enemy's desire is? It is that he would take them with him. If you got saved praying the sinner's prayer, that was not because you prayed a prayer. It's because God saved you sincerely because you sincerely sought him. And finally, you pray scripture over their life. You pick any scripture and you pray it over their life and you pray that God would draw them back. What scripture? Golly, you got a whole book to pick from, don't you? Whole Bible. Praise the Lord. There's so many scriptures you can pray. But I want you to know, if these people walk away and you've prayed for them and you've shared the gospel with them and you've wept over them and you've pleaded with them and you've begged with them and they still reject it, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt your heart. It's gonna hurt your relationship. It's gonna hurt every fiber of your being. But I wanna remind you, you're being faithful to your God and that is the greater obedience that you have in that situation anytime, anywhere, any place. Be faithful to the Lord. They're not easy words this morning. And I've had two weeks of COVID fog brain to think about them. But I pray this morning, if you're here and you know Jesus, that you celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. Will you join me in prayer as we invite our worship team up? Father, I just pray as we get ready to sing a song, partake of the Lord's Supper, and close out from there. Father, I thank you that you are the good and awesome God. Father, as as a pastor, I, I don't, I'm a messenger. I don't presume to be any greater than anyone I'm talking to. If my words were passionate or impassionate, Lord, may they be so to your glory. But the ultimate truth, the reality remains that it is possible to be around church people, to count yourself among the church people, but never have really come to know Jesus. It was true in the writer of the Hebrews day, It's been true in every generation until kingdom come and will be. So, Father, give us wisdom. Pray for those this morning who feel they've crossed that line of no return, yet have a sensitive heart to your Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Spirit. Father, do your work and draw them. Pray for those who, Christian today, who may be doubting their salvation because they see themselves in verses 26 to 31. Would you reassure them? Father, I pray for those who, who, who just seem to be on cloud nine with you that nothing can break it. At some point, the, the Peter effect is going to happen. They're going to come off the mountain. Reality is going to set in. But, Lord, remind them that no matter what they face, you're with them. For those who are truly lost today who've never come to Jesus, would you draw them? Father, all by your grace, we love you, Lord. We pray all this today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.